the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Now, good morning to you from uh, Branson, my last day in Branson, the Dave Ellswick Show with you. Robert Steinbach will join me momentarily. Uh, Liz Wheeler will be with us at 635. No Congressman Hill today. He had an important meeting that came up. I was notified uh, last night, and so he will have to not appear today. And then... uh, Congressman Bruce Westerman will be on in the final hour, but uh, we'll spend just the last 20 minutes of the show with us. I'll be with uh, with you until about 7.35, and then I've got to get all of my luggage down uh, to the motor coach so that we can get on the road by about 8.15. We're going to be traveling today on the, uh, uh, the highway, and uh, we will be out uh, on the road for most of the morning and the afternoon and early evening. Long, long ride today uh, to go from Branson to Louisville, Kentucky. We'll, we'll set up base uh, for tomorrow's show and be on with you live from, uh, from Louisville. We'll lose an hour as we go up there, but you won't know the difference. I'll be on at 6 a.m. as normal uh, but it will be 7 a.m. in Louisville, Kentucky. So uh, I might get just a tad bit of sleep that might be that might be nice that won't be an unwelcome thing and then uh, last night we spent our time uh, seeing a show called Jesus at Sight and Sound absolutely fantastic uh, presentation Uh, if you come to Branson or you've been thinking about going to Branson uh, to see this show uh, please do it is absolutely awesome the special effects and the things that they do on the stage for this show is really incredible uh, i understood what they did with the boats on the sea of galilee uh, during the fishing sequences and things of that nature to make them look like they were moving along the shore how they made it look like you were walking up a hill and then cresting the hill and looking down on Jerusalem and how they used the back screen projection to make that look realistic uh, on the stage. But I still don't know how they pulled off uh, the Sea of Galilee and the storm that Christ calmed when Peter got out of the boat and tried to walk on water or did walk on water for a short distance before he lost his faith by taking his eyes off of Christ and started sinking and Christ reached down and pulled him up. It. It's a great, 
great. I'm just telling you, it's a great show. By the way, I will tell you, I was talking to to Lynn, one of our head salespeople here at the station last night, and I said, make sure you take some tissue. You will need it. You will need it. It's a, it's a very good show. You'll enjoy it a lot. So, uh, you know, maybe do a family outing for a weekend. Come to Branson and catch that. Uh, if you're looking for other shows to go to while you're here, because we did uh, three different shows, uh, the, uh, the the Clay Cooper Theater puts on a fantastic show as well. If you can get tickets to that show, that's a hard one to get. you got to, you know, be far out to to get your seat because people know now that Clay Cooper show is really fantastic. Thousand seat auditorium. They fill it regularly, even during the weekdays. And then uh, a show that we saw last night that I thought was great. Uh, I'm a big Four Seasons fan, as as you all know. I've, <clears throat> I've talked about Frankie Valley and Four Seasons a lot, and uh, they uh, they put on a show called. Uh, uh, about the Jersey Boys, and of course that's the Four Seasons. Really, a really good show. If you like Four Seasons music, '60s music in general, you're going to like it. They do a little Motown in it. They do a little girl group music in it. They got some very, uh, uh, very talented ladies that uh, perform with the show. But the guys that do the parts of the Four Seasons are really, really good. And and by the way, if you're worried about do they have somebody that can sing and hit the, the Frankie Valley notes? Absolutely. Okay, so think about that. And another show that you might look into to go and uh, and check out. Very, very good show. All right, Robert Steinbach, I think, is here. Are you there, Robert? I am here, my friend. How are you? Okay. Good morning. I, I'm doing good. A little bit tired. Uh, mm-hmm. we, make, we do for long days when we're we're on our tours. Uh, we don't change schedule for the tours to coincide with the the way my show runs. So uh, they know that I'm going to get up like at 4 a.m. But they don't even they don't even give me a break. They say, well, we're going to stay out to about 10:30 or 11 o'clock, which means that I'm going to get in bed at about midnight. So that's the you know that's just the the non benefit of going on this show. I got to tell you what. I go on these tours all the time when we put them together with Little Rock Tours. Gina and I put these tours together about what we want to do, what we want to see, and we have a great time. It, this is just, you go to my Facebook page on uh, 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 the Dave Ellswick Show on Facebook. Join on that, by the way, because you'll see a lot of information uh, as well that I post continually throughout the day. But uh, the the whole thing about one of these tours is really, we're going to have to get get you to go on one of them, Robert. Absolutely. Didn't you all at one time try to plan a trip even to Israel? Yes, we we, we did, and uh, we we weren't able to uh, secure enough people to want to go. Uh, yeah, if, it's a big operation, pe- obviously. Yeah, yeah. If people want to send me uh, information and say they'd like me to put that together again, I'll get a hold of Ruben Duran. Uh, over in Israel, our our good friend that comes on from time to time to talk about what's happening uh, over there, and we'll talk to him and and see if we can make that happen. Uh, I would say that if we're going to start uh, preparing that, we should prepare it uh, for 2022. It, it, you know, because it's not a cheap endeavor. Sure, at the earliest. 
That's right. Yeah, that's right. It's not a cheap endeavor to go over there. But here's what I, I'll tell you. Reuben always tells me, he says, if you go to Israel, he says, number one, if you're, if you're Christian or Jewish, uh, the spiritual uh, feelings that you have are incredible. And number two, uh, if you stick a spade in the ground anywhere in Israel, you'll, you'll put, and, and then put up a, a spade of dirt and turn it over, you will find history because right. uh, so much history went on over in the uh, the Middle East at that time. Here's, you know, when I say you get you get excited about the spirituality of uh, of Israel, let me explain to you when everybody under, remembers the, the story in the Bible uh, about the passion where Christ is in uh, the olive uh, grove of the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, here's here's the real deal. Some of those olive trees are still there. They're thousands of years old. Olive trees live an inordinate uh, amount of time. And uh, it's really amazing uh, to think that you could stand in the Garden of Gethsemane and perhaps, just perhaps, you know, one of the disciples leaned up against that tree when they fell asleep while Christ was, you know, talking to the Father. So it's, I, I mean, I'm looking forward to it. The day I go is, uh, or the time that I go, I'd like to take a lot of listeners. That would be fun. Maybe we could figure out a way of doing the show from over there, or at least for a couple of days. That would be fun, and getting some people on uh, to talk well, to Well, we us. did the show from Poland, Dave, when I was in Poland. I mean, obviously I you were here in Little Rock. So if we could do a, a joint show from uh, Poland, joint meaning you had me as a guest, uh, we right. certainly uh, could um, envision having you do a show from Israel. Yeah, we could we could look into that. To be honest, we could definitely look. At, I'm, I'll uh, I'll start talking about it a little bit. And again, if you're a listener and you'd like to go to Israel, uh, we'll give you plenty of time to put the money together, and uh, it include all of your t- your stay. You have five star hotels that you stay at. Your your evening meal would be included. All of your trips around Israel and all, and all the re- all the rest. And if you're worried about is it safe? It's safe in the country uh, because I mean, if the Palestinians try to shoot missiles over, you don't have to worry. You got the Iron Dome over your head, so you're you're going to be <laughs> you'd be in good shape. Let's just put it that way. You'd be in good shape. And I do know some of the places that they go. Uh, they go to the Mount of Olives. They go to the Temple Wall. Um, I mean, it, that that really is one of my bucket list things that I want to do uh, before uh, I can get out and, and, uh, and go around. Hey, listen, Willie has a question for uh, us, uh, Robert. We'll get to it when we come back. We've got to take our first break. Coming up at uh, 635, Liz Wheeler. You've seen her on Fox. Uh, you might listen to her podcast. She's going to talk with us today. We're going to talk about critical race theory with her, and we're going to talk about the border, and I'll give you some exciting news about the Dave Ellswick Show and the border as well when we return here on 101.1 FM, The Answer. All right, back with you here on the Dave Ellswick Show. Told you that uh, I had some information to tell you about the border. Uh, and I'm sure that Liz will have something she wants to talk about about that as well. I got contacted yesterday, uh, uh, Robert, about from uh, FAIR in uh, Washington, D.C., mm-hmm. and uh, they're going to have another hold their feet to the fire 
this year in September, the the very last week of September, and uh, they absolutely want to have uh, my show there uh, with our listeners to hear all the information about what's going on at, at the border. All the movers and shakers dealing with the border will be there. Uh, probably not many Biden officials because they're not doing anything with the border. I mean, the vice president who's in charge of it hasn't even been to the border yet. And so uh, I'll be going to Washington, D.C. for that and broadcasting live uh, in the mornings uh, from D.C. Uh, at the uh, the last week of September. So I'm excited about that. We will be there probably with somewhere around 90 to 100 other talk stations across America, uh, given what, uh, you know, real-time information about the border. And uh, I'll talk to Bob Dane, and uh, he has uh, told me in a phone conversation that they're going to make a trip to the border before the end of the year, but i got to see if that is going to be a, a way of co-siding uh, our, our show uh, with what they're going to do. What I also wanted to bring up to you a story today uh, that I was looking about at dealing with uh, Joe Biden's uh, 2022 budget, which, by the way, is only a six trillion dollar budget. I mean, this is a huge monstrosity that that his uh, administration has put together. But, of course, I didn't read all of it. I mean, you're talking, you know, thousands of pages if you've ever seen the budget of this country, uh, it, it stands about, I think it's about four and a half foot tall when they put it all together and print mm-hmm. it up. But but here's the key. There's a section in it dealing about uh, money that they want to use to reduce infant uh, mortality. Now, I'm not saying that that's a bad thing. I'm not saying that's a bad thing at all. Uh, you know, they they talk about the United States has the highest maternal mortality rate among developed nations. I'd like to see how they go about determining uh, deaths. Some some countries, uh, you know, look at abortions. Others don't. We look at abortions as a a, a terrible termination of a of of a you know, of a, an expected mother. A long talking about this uh, issue, they use some very interesting language in it. You and I have talked about this, that you, you really almost need a lexicon to know what the leftists are talking about at times. Well, here you go. You know, they want to get away from uh, the traditional mom and dad vernacular, uh, even kids and all of that. They, you know, they want their, the kids to have pronouns and all the rest of the crazy stuff that they talk about. Well, let me read a paragraph to you uh, that talks about maternal health and maternal uh, morbidity, which refer to motherhood. Uh, there's in that $200 million allotted to investments to implement uh, implicit bias training for health care providers. Bias training. I don't, I don't know. How can you screw with somebody's bias? I guess you can if you think a boy can be a girl and a girl can be a man or whatever. Uh, the Biden budget doesn't call these people uh, 
you know, mothers, pregnant mothers they, or anything like that. They call them, you ready for the term? Birthing I'm people. I'm waiting for it. Oh, birthing people. people. Yeah, they oh, call them people. birthing people. How how ridiculous like is this? Sanitation engineer. You remember when you couldn't call someone uh, a garbage man? Right. But yeah, because way, you had to make them sound really way. important. Well, that's right. And, and they, by the way, they are important in all seriousness. The guy that picks up my garbage is more important to me than a lot of other people around in the community, because otherwise I have a bunch of garbage piling up around my house. So they are important. However, what do they do? They pick up garbage. It's a dirty job, like that TV show. Yeah, you get your hand. You know, Chris used to pick up garbage, and then he became a supervisor of a garbage crew, whatever it's called. I don't even know that. Uh-huh. And he became a supervisor. He would send trucks all over the city here in Little Rock years and years ago. He helped put himself through school doing that. This is important, hard work. But you're a garbage man, not a sanitation engineer. But nobody wants to say what they do because apparently everybody needs a title. You know what I am? I'm a teacher or an academic. Yeah. Right. Uh, that's it. People are, oh, you're a professor. Yes, that's the title. In the classroom, you, you address me as professor. But I don't march around telling people I'm a professor. I've seen too many academics, by the way, inside school. And I'm not talking about my school, although it happens there, too, but it happens everywhere. Where they sit around, they go, well, Professor Smith. Like, you mean John down the hall? You know, it's all this pomp and circumstance. Everybody has to feel so important. Be satisfied. It's always good to have goals, to strive for more, to to be active, to have uh, to pursue something higher. But it's also good to be satisfied and not to put on pretenses. And I just am amazed at how we put on pretenses. Coupled with that. Now we have this make-believe language of birthing individuals. You mean a mother? Right, wasn't, who was it? Uh, was it Martina Navratilova who got in trouble? She's the uh, famous uh, tennis star from the 70s, really outstanding, happens to be uh, gay. Uh, and someone, I think it was she that said that, she said she got in trouble for some related comment, if not this one. And someone was using one of these comments about um, birthing people. And she said, you mean a woman? Right, because this is not very complicated. Men aren't having children. Women oh, but wait, have children. Wait, when you look at the way that the, that the left does the defining, men can have children because if, exactly. you think that, if you think, if you're a woman and think that you're a man and identify, quote, as a man, and you, exactly. and you become a birthing person, then you're a man having a baby. It's the most convoluted amount of BS I've, I've ever heard. Hey, we've got to take a break real quickly here. We've got news coming up, and Liz Wheeler is just around the corner. All right, back with you here on the Dave Ellswick Show, live from Branson as our tour continues here. We'll be on the road heading to Louisville, Kentucky, and uh, heading up there to uh, take a ride on the Dixie Bell and uh, out on the Ohio and having dinner, and then we're going to go see the Ark uh, tomorrow. So uh, we're looking to do that. It should be a whole lot of fun uh, as we can continue on with our tour. Today is a long day on the road, about 10 hours. It's the, uh, as I call them, this is the butt numathon uh, part of the uh, trip. You've got to ride down uh, the road to get where you're going to. Special guest this uh, half hour. 
Uh, I'm really excited to have Liz Wheeler with her, uh, with us. We've had uh, seen her on Fox News. You've seen her on other uh, channels as well. She does a podcast. You've heard her talk many times, and it's really uh, a, a, an opportunity for us to have her on. And I'm going to talk with her, and Rob's going to talk to her about something really important. You know, we did the show just the other day uh, about what's going on here in the state about critical race theory and how they're getting the uh, AG involved and uh, try and uh, Representative Lowry over in Maumel is uh, going to the AG for a uh, some kind of a ruling saying that it is a um, uh, it, well, it's a discriminatory law. So we're going, uh, so we're going to talk about that as well. Liz, thanks for joining us here on the Dave Ellswick Show. It's good to have you here. And uh, CRT is something that you've been spending a lot of time talking about it as well. Th- I think this kind of stuff is what's really, really dangerous for the republic. By the way, definitely, Dave. Thanks so much for having me today. I'm really happy to be here and talk to you and talk to Rob. Critical race theory is something that every one of your listeners, and especially parents of school-aged children, should be aware of. Um, it, we're told by the left that it's just a perspective on teaching history, that it just looks at history through the eyes of those who have been discriminated against, you know, people of color, minority groups. But that's not true. In fact, critical race theory, it teaches that everything should be viewed through the prism of race, which, as we know, is racist because it reduces everybody to simply the color of their skin versus the content of their character. But it's actually worse than that. I I did some research on this for an episode of my new show because I wanted to see where this poisonous ideology had come from, why it's so pervasive in our country right now, in so many of our institutions, schools and workplaces. And what I found is that critical race theory is actually the brainchild or perhaps the grandchild of critical theory. Critical theory is a Marxist ideology that was created in the 1930s that essentially teaches that there's no objective truth, that everything is just a competing political narrative, and that racial minorities should be used instead of workers for a Karl Marx-style revolution. And what I mean by that is that in the 1930s, these Marxists at the Frankfurt School in Germany realized that Karl Marx's vision of a worker-led revolution wasn't going to happen. The workers weren't going to revolt, right, or going to revolt. So they decided they needed another vanguard, and they decided that they would use racial minorities in the West to try to undermine the cultural institutions that make up a free society so that they could impose Marxism instead. This was exported from Germany to the United States through Columbia University, and from there it's been disseminated now into every corner of our country. So when you hear the phrase critical race theory, it's not a perspective on history. It's not even a theory at all. It's a tactic to impose Marxism, and it's being taught to your children in school. Robert, I'm going to turn you loose, brother. I know you got some great questions about this. Uh, Absolutely, Liz. It's it's such a joy to to have you on the show. Uh, Look, what's happening today in education, from higher education where I teach in, meaning college uh, and graduate school, to K through 12, is a series of indoctrination. We're, We're no longer teaching our kids to learn. Now, don't get me wrong, they still, I suspect, teach multiplication tables, etc. But more and more, we see teachers 
under the belief through their leftist administrators uh, that they should be, quote, teaching, end quote, students ideology. How do we undo this leftist attempt to indoctrinate our kids? These are now partially re-education camps, not schools. How do we reverse this trend? The first thing that I think we need to do to restore and reclaim these institutions is we as conservatives need to admit that we have lost the culture war. And I don't say that to be pessimistic. I say that because if you look objectively at what has happened the last 50, 60, 70 years, I mean, look at the billboard charts of, the, of music, for example. You can't look at the billboard charts and see Cardi B's vulgar song, WAP, at the top of the charts and think that conservatives are winning the cultural battles, the pop culture battles, right? So we, we have to acknowledge as conservatives that we've played defense the last 50, 60, 70 years. And as a result of playing defense, we've, to use a sports analogy, we've been trying to defend the one-yard line as the radical left has backed us up inch by inch until we're close to the point of no return. So the first thing that we have to do is we have to acknowledge that our strategy thus far has not been working in most areas. In some areas it has, but in most areas it hasn't. And so we have to readjust. We have to start playing offense. We have to start identifying um, these different assaults and the tactics, like critical race theory, for what they really are. We have to stop playing by the left rules. We have to stop, you know, playing identity politics and trying to kowtow to the left needs. And we have to be unapologetic. We have to say no. Critical race theory is racist, and we should reject that. It's also racialism, which means it's a tactic to impose Marxism, and we absolutely, unequivocally should reject that. If you communicate this properly to parents, if you don't back down to the radical leftist bullying, if you don't kowtow to them trying to play identity politics, then the majority of parents actually agree. They don't want their children taught this nonsense. That's why, and I think over 20 states right now in state legislatures They've passed bills prohibiting the teaching of this poisonous ideology to young kids in school because parents don't want their children taught that. So we have to be unapologetic. We have to know more than the left. We have to call them out for their tactics and not play by their rules. Yeah, I got a couple of questions real quick here, uh, Liz. We've been having this fight here in the state of Arkansas uh, just in our last general session, which uh, is still kind of open because we got to do redistricting uh, yet here in the state of Arkansas. And we've been waiting for, you know, the information that we need from the federal government to be able to do that. But during when they, Representative uh, Lowry brought up a bill uh, trying to stop the teaching of 1619 in the schools here in Arkansas, and the bill failed. And let me let me tell you the the uh, what the left used to defend 1619. They said it's up to the school system to decide what they're going to teach their particular students. So what they did is they used an argument that we use all the time about federalism, and uh, you know taking it down even you know, on a local level here in the state of Arkansas and saying, well, we shouldn't be telling a school system from a centralized location of the state uh, that they can or can't teach something. And I said, if you're if it's a lie, which 1619 is, why would you allow any school system to teach that? I mean, if if a, if a program came out 
and used Nazi, uh, you know, thoughts to teach uh, what they wanted to say was truth, would would we allow a school district to teach that? And the answer to that is a, a an unequivocal no. So I would think that uh, we still have some things to to do. How do you fight against that type of of uh, argument from the left? Because for a lot of parents and for a lot, you know, they say, yeah, I don't want the state telling me what I got to, we, we got to teach our kids. I want my school board to be able to do that. That makes sense to you? Well, I think, I think that's somewhat of a false argument because, first of all, it, it's not a federalist system in the sense that we're talking about curriculum within a state. You're not talking about the federal government. So the state has a right um, to do that. You're correct. It is revisionist history. So when you're talking about something that's just objectively false, States are allowed to make curriculum guidelines. Now, I think most parents do agree that they want curriculum to be designed by localities, and that's fine. I actually advocate for that, too. But here's the problem. The state mandates that children attend school, right? You're you're a truant. Your child's a truant, and you're going to be punished as as parents if you don't send your child to school. And so you're limited in your choices then. If If we don't have an absolute school choice voucher system, which means that you're not tied to the public school in your zip code, then you could be forced to allow your child to be indoctrinated with the 1519 Project if the school board in your particular area happens to be terrible or leftist or believe in this nonsense. So there has to be some power given to the parents, not just the localities, to determine whether or not they want this taught to their child. So if your state legislature, which it sounds like it did, rejected um, a provision to ban the teaching of the 1619 Project on a statewide basis, and the next step is to fight for school choice. Because what happens is it works almost like the markets do, right? High in demand. If there's a school that's teaching a 1619 Project and the majority of parents don't want that, if you have a voucher system and a school choice system, then parents can not only remove their children from that school, they can also pull the money that comes with their child from that school, and that's thus the right. market forces that school to either adjust or the school shuts down and another one replaces it. So there are there are safeguards that you can implement in your state that get around the concerns, if they're valid concerns. I don't know if it was just cowardice on the part of the Republicans in the state legislature who didn't want to fight the 1619 Project fight. But if they're valid concerns about not dictating from a state level, there are other safeguards that you can uh, put into place in the public school system via school choice that helps uh, parents have the power over what's being taught to their children. Well, I, I got to tell you, Liz, hey, Robert, she sounds a lot like me, doesn't she? Uh, she sounds uh, even better. You're <laughs> <laughs> too kind. Oh, that's funny. Anyway, we got to take a break, Liz, and then we'll come back and we'll continue uh, with our discussion. Andrew Breitbart, who is a friend of mine, uh, used to have a term called where he would talk and he would say culture is upstream from politics. And uh, and I want to talk about that because I think that's where we've really lost the battle. And uh, we've got to take back uh, the culture and, and the way that and our and get our narrative out there. I don't think we do a good job of getting our narrative out, although it's easier from the left side because they just promise a whole lot of, you know, pie in the sky crap. Uh, let's come back and talk a little bit about how do we communicate with our own people and, and, and convince them what's 
on the line here. It's the Dave Ellswick Show. We've got to get a break in. Liz Wheeler is our guest. She's got her own podcast. You see her on Fox. Hey, Liz, where can people get your podcast before I go to break? Yeah, certainly. You can go to LizWheelerShow.com uh, to find all the different platforms. It's basically on everywhere that you can find podcasts. I always ask people, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Give us a five-star rating and a review over there because that helps us climb up the charts, which helps more people discover the show, which helps more people hear reality. You can go to LizWheelerShow.com to find all the different platforms. All right. Sounds fantastic. Quick break. Robert, we'll be right back right here on the Dave Ellswick Show. All right. If you just tuned in and uh, you're heading into work, we've got Liz Wheeler with us. Is one of the country's most popular podcasts, and you see her on all of the uh, news programs on cable as well. She's a great conservative. Uh, We were lucky enough to get her for a half hour today and have her join us here on the Dave Ellswick Show. We'll try to have her back on because we're not going to be able to touch everything we want to talk about today. And uh, Robert Steinbach is here. I want to let you know Robert Steinbach is a law professor at the Bowen School of Law. His opinions are his and his alone and do not necessarily uh, reflect those of the law school or the university to uh, which it's assigned. And, and let me just also say this, because I always throw this in as an aside. Uh, they should be opinions that the law school holds and the university, at least in my estimation. All right, so let's get back in the talk. I brought back uh, the name of Andrew Breitbart, one of the the great uh, conservatives. I think he goes into that pantheon uh, with great conservatives who came up with the term that uh, culture was upstream from uh, politics. Now, what he was saying, just in easy-to-understand language, is What you see on the movie screen, on the TV screen, hearing music, reading books, is all upstream from politics. Uh, If they get on something in any of those, in all of those kind of multimedia type of uh, uh, cases, uh, it will float downstream to politics and politicians will pay attention. If everybody is watching some kind of political program like the West Room uh, and they're dealing with an issue on the West Room, which happens to mimic something that's really happening in our country, you will think you are up to date on what's going on uh, with, uh, you know, with your country when, in fact, it could be nothing more than a bunch of writers sitting in a room trying to make you think that you're up on what's really happening in your country. Now, a leftist uh, uh, talking point is a whole lot easier typically to defend with a narrative than a right side uh, point because we deal in facts, uh, left will deal with feelings. So I want to bring Liz back in with us and talk about this because I think that's been some of the problem uh, for us uh, on the right, we who are conservatives, of uh, of telling our our narrative in a clear, entertaining way that people want to sit and listen to. Would you agree with that, Liz? Yes, I would agree with that. And I think you're absolutely right about the culture. And that's one of the things that we're focusing on on my new show is the idea that politics is downstream of culture. So if conservatives surrender the cultural institutions that underpin our moral society, whether that's traditional marriage, the family, the public school system, the universities, then we're going to lose the political fights before we've even begun. Because when I say 
win a cultural battle or lose a cultural battle, I'm generally talking about public opinion, people's feelings uh-huh. on the matter. And so when people's feelings are not in your favor, you're not going to win the political battle, right? When they are right. in your favor, you begin to win legislative battles. And I can actually give you, so as not to sound too pessimistic, I can give you an example of a, of a cultural arena that conservatives actually are beginning to win. We are beginning to win the cultural battle, and we're seeing it translate into wins legislatively, and that would be in the pro-life movement. The pro-life movement has done an amazing job of exposing the reality of abortion and talking about when life begins. And when people begin to hear the truth about when life begins and what the reality of the abortion procedure is, they begin to change their minds on whether or not it should be legal. In fact, as of right now, over 80% of people in our country, this is Republican and Democrat, liberal, conservative, pro-abortion, pro-life, think that late-term abortion should be banned, should be prohibited. That's 80% of our country. 60% of our country think that second-term abortion should be banned. This is an enormous public opinion. I mean, this is a vast majority of people, right? You, get, you hardly get that consensus on any issue. And the pro-life movement has spent the last 30 years just hammering these talking points, making sure people understand when life begins and what abortion is. And the result has been this, this tide changing in, in the culture, in popular culture, and in public opinion. And it's translating. This year alone, there's been over 500 pieces of pro-life legislation introduced in state legislatures around the country, 61 of which have been signed into law. So you can see the trajectory of winning a cultural battle, getting public opinion on your side, and then it translating to legislation, whereas if you had tried this 10, 15, 20 years ago, you might not have won legislatively because public opinion wasn't on your side. Yeah, I'll just let you know that you're talking to listeners that live in the most pro-life state in the union. Arkansas has been voted the number one state pro-life here in the United States by uh, pro-life organizations. Uh, so, yeah, we we understand all of this. And again, you got to get into this. The left does this all the time. They get into this fight for the long term. The right has to understand we've kind of acquiesced to the left in culture and in music and in movies and in books and all the rest. We've got to get active and get our point of view out in those particular types of of uh, products so that, you know, people are talking about. You know, right side uh, economics, capitalism, and things of that nature, uh, like they're breathing air. Agreed. I mean, we haven't, as conservatives, always done the best job of countering the left narrative because we typically deal with facts and figures, you know, black and white on paper type of sometimes admittedly boring statistics that back up our policy ideas where the left uses narrative, they use anecdote, they use personal story, they use emotion, and they use it manipulatively, which is dishonest, but the right needs to learn how to translate facts and figures and numbers and statistics into individualized stories because we do have the best answers. But I don't say that as just a party loyalist. I say that as coming from a perspective of someone who believes that the conservative principles of limited government and individual liberty and constitutional law really serve all people the best. It's not that they just serve, it's not just that conservative principles serve conservative people the best. They serve all people the best. And you can see an example of exactly what I'm talking about down in Texas right now. There was a series of mayoral races 
on these border towns in Texas, you know, that are being ravaged because of Biden's border crisis. And they all elected Republican mayors, even though the majority of the demographic in those towns are Hispanic. And That's they, right. And historically elected Democrats, but they see that the conservatives are offering um, crime Solutions. I, Liz, I got it. I got it. I got to jump. I got to jump in, Liz. We're out of time. We'll have you back in the near future. We want to talk with you more here on the Dave Ellswick Show. Have a great day. Stay tuned. News is next. Back with you here for the final hour of the uh, uh, Dave Ellswick show. Uh, big story that uh, came out, uh, as you know, uh, our vice president uh, went down to Central America, went to Guatemala, and uh, wasn't greeted exactly the way she thought she was going to be greeted. A lot of people met her uh, at the different places that she was going, Robert, and basically... Mm-hmm. Uh, had, well, they were holding up signs that I remember back in the late 60s, early 70s, Yankee, go home and, uh, you know, quit trying to tell us how to deal with the problem that we're having uh, in our own country. Because she went down to Central America to tell them, well, you're the reason why we're having a problem at the southern border. Uh, and there's there's some some truth to that but it it belies the the fact that you have a, a situation on the southern border that this administration refuses to do anything about it uh well anyway here's what happened uh AOC slabbed she went she she just went crazy on Harris when Harris told the Guatemalans evidently hey look don't come to the United States because uh, you're not going to get in. Wow, that sounds awful familiar, doesn't it? Uh, uh, the president before this one said kind of the same thing, and people like uh, you know the the left were attacking them about how unfeeling that we were and how we didn't believe in allowing people to have the right of freedom to find their job wherever they wanted it in the world economy, et cetera, et cetera yada 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 type stuff and uh, i think it's it's uh, it's entertaining to watch uh, the left eat its own 100% but of course dave part of the problem is that we as conservatives don't do a good enough job pushing back against leftism for example it, we talked about this my my point exactly from the last right. half hour right and, uh, you, and I'm building on your very point, to be clear. <clears throat> Think about what happened in the state legislature this past session. When uh, Dan Sullivan tries to pass a very simple bill regarding education, we just talked uh, with your previous guest for half an hour about how education, 
higher education and K through 12 have become indoctrination centers. So how do we push back against that? We do it in a way that allows for true freedom of speech on campus, because what's being restricted now, not leftist ideology, that's being taught top down. What's being restricted is conservative groups, right? Turning Point USA gets kicked off of ASU. Uh, And so Dan Sullivan uh, pushes a bill to allow conservative speech on campus. Let's be clear. It's to allow any speech on campus. But the speech that's being restricted is conservative speech. And three Republicans, Jane English, James Sturch, and Lance Eads, hold up the bill because they effectively are shilling for big university uh, and big institutional education. They, they are pushing the interests of leftists instead of pushing a conservative agenda because they're getting information, they're getting communication, they're getting input from big education, institutional education, not from the people of Arkansas. That's not how we're supposed to be represented, Dave. We're supposed to be represented as citizens having the elected officials representing us, not institutions. So that's the problem that we have. Of course, we have a bunch of good senators and we need to get more. We just brought in uh, Charles Beckham. Uh, we, uh, of course, have Kim Hammer. We have Bart Hester, Jason Raper, Dan Sullivan, I mentioned, uh, Missy Irving. You know, I'm going to leave off a name, I'm sure. But we need, and, and I was just speaking, by the way, about the Senate. Of course, the House is equally as important. We need to continue to push for conservative representatives in Arkansas so that we can actually effectuate conservative outcomes. We passed Stand Your Ground, Dave, barely. We passed it. That's great. It's wonderful. The outcome is exactly what we need. But we passed it by, like, one vote. Yeah. One vote. That's too close. I agree. Right? Go ahead. Yeah, I agree. I agree wholeheartedly with everything you just said. It's, uh, you know, amazing to me. You know, Bruce Westerman, when he was a state representative, uh, came up with a, a way of getting around the Lakeview case. And anybody who's been here in Arkansas for any length of time knows that the Lakeview case was uh, the huge uh, education case uh, that talked about equity as far in learning and things of that nature. And he said that the way uh, to break through that, and Liz r- referred to this, and that was school choice. And the, mm-hmm. there's it's, it's by no... Uh, imagining why we're so pro-school choice on this show. Uh, Bruce said what they should do is go to vouchers. Oh, my God, I just said the word. Oh, my God, the B word. If you're you're on the left, I hope that you didn't drive your car too far off the road. But the bottom line is uh, it would be, to me, to the benefit of every parent in the state of Arkansas if each one of them got the amount of money that it took, according to the school district, to uh, educate their child, and then they could take that and take that money with the child because the child's worth that much money. I mean, let's, let's be honest about it here, and be able to put them in the school 
school that you want them to be in. So if if they're teaching 1619 and critical race theory and and telling kids that they got to be called by pronouns and you don't want your kid in there, you go find yourself a good school and uh, you put your money in that in that school. Put your child there and take the money with them. You, everybody would find out real real quick how uh, the schools would change their tenor about what they're teaching. Yeah, Dave, look, that's that's exactly right. So I mentioned one problem. One problem is we don't have enough conservative legislators. We've got enough Republican, meaning some of the Republicans are rhinos or whatever other phrase you want to use. Some people don't like that phrase. But the, the bottom line is that their title is Republican, but they're not voting conservative. Oh, who's the other one? What's his name? The representative that is up in Conway. Uh, I forget his name now. Uh, but he, he, he sat out a bunch of votes. Uh, Spencer Hawks. Oh, you're talking about Hawks. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Uh, Spencer Hawks sat out a bunch of votes. Well, you get paid to vote, right? That's your job. Similarly, uh, we have a bunch of leftist judges. Tim Fox, I've mentioned before. Uh, He just got reversed by the Supreme Court uh, on a case that uh, um, our friend Chris Corbett is the attorney on. And he got reversed. Why? Because he doesn't want to do his job. Judges do two related things. They decide who wins a particular overall case or a part of a case. That's called a motion. And then they explain why. In other words, they describe what the law is. Well, what has Tim Fox been doing throughout the case that Chris has been handling for me? He just says, oh, you win or you win. No explanation. Uh He's not doing his job. And then he complains, well, I'm very busy and and wasting my time, wasting my time. Let me tell you, if a judge ever says that his time is wasted, you know what is wasted? The vote on him. Go vote for somebody else. Because he sought out that job. He campaigns every four or six, whatever years it is, to get that job. Too much work? Too busy? Too hard? Let somebody else do that job. There's always somebody applying for that job. So it's not like we don't have plenty of candidates for that job. Uh, But I'm always amazed at how many judges get a job and then all they do is cry about how they don't like the job. Quit or don't run again. Well, and of course, we'll be sure to support whoever runs against him and other leftist judges who don't want to do their jobs. We don't we don't need that. That's not what we pay them. I think they get paid one hundred fifty, one hundred seventy thousand dollars a year. That's good money, baby. But yeah, I, this is the problem. I, I, We've got you. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I agree exactly with what you're saying. And uh, now it's time. And and I I I predicted that this would happen. That as we made the transition from 135 years of Democrats uh, running this state to uh, you know Republican rule, it didn't mean that we would make a move to conservative rule that what would happen is that we would it would take some time and in this case it looks like 8 years for conservatives to understand you've got to get your own people into office so that you can get those conservative ideas codified into law you know in other words here's the law of the land and for instance it it's that 
you know, you, you can't kill a baby in the womb or whatever. I mean, it takes time to get that done. And we're coming to the fruition that I think that we've made the transition now and we'll start seeing more and more conservatives. We saw more conservatives in the last election heading to the House and to the Senate as well. So uh, I think there's good things that are going to happen into the future. But it's a it's a it's an ongoing fight. I mean, Reagan was right. It only takes one generation for freedom to disappear. It's been very evident, if you've been watching what's going on in our country, that things have changed quickly because it doesn't take long, especially if you get control of the news media and the entertainment media as well. All right, let's take a break. We'll come back. Uh, I've got one more segment to do with Robert. Let's talk uh, with him some more when we come back, and then I'll turn it over to him for the last half hour here on the Dave Ellswick Show. Hey, back with you. Let's uh, talk a little bit further uh, with Robert. I've got about eight minutes left here, and then I've got to pull all my gear together and get downstairs and load it on the coach and start heading to Louisville, Kentucky. From, and that's where I'll be uh, originating the show uh, tomorrow uh, here on 101.1 FM. The uh, answer tomorrow in the first hour, it will be Ken Yang, the chair of the Republican Party in Saline County. And uh, J.R. Davis will join me as well. And then in the second hour, uh, coming into the studio to do the show, and I won't be there, but uh, we will still do the show. It'll be Duck, and it will be Joe, and they'll be doing your car questions here on the Dave Ellswick Show. With that said, let me uh, get to uh, Robert, because we were talking about education earlier in the show, and one of the things that uh, people need to understand is Robert's made it very abundantly clear as you've uh, listened to him over the years that he's been a part of the show, and it has been years now, not just months, years that I've had Robert on. Yeah, it's always been great to have him on because he cuts through the BS of education. He really does. I mean, he's a he's a scholar and he's a teacher and, you know, he's a practicing lawyer uh, and he works for the Bowen uh, School of Law. And uh, here's the key. He understands the hierarchy of uh, education uh, at the college level. Here's the problem that we got in the United States. What you're seeing happening in the college level continues now to seep down into the high school and the junior high levels uh, with kids, and they can uh, propagandize them uh, and, and get them to be good little brown shirts uh, a lot earlier than they could wait until they were at, at college. With that said, let's talk about an issue uh, dealing with higher education, and that's like who gets to teach what courses? Who gets to teach what courses? And uh, Robert's been wanting to teach constitutional law uh, for a long time, but has not been na- tabbed to do that, not because he can't, I have to say it's because of his political ideology, and and he's gotten crossways at times with the with the movers and shakers uh, in Fayetteville and here in uh, UALR and whatever. So let me let you just pick it up, Robert, and, and talk about that a little bit. Well, thanks for asking, Dave. Uh, it yes, I have asked for some time now to teach constitutional law. To be clear, there has not been 
a pending opening because in the last couple of years, I would say, I don't know, two, three, one year, um, we had one professor teaching both the day and the night. That's unusual. Usually you have one professor teaches day, one professor teaches night, and then they switch the subsequent year. Uh, but when the now dean became dean, uh, she stopped teaching constitutional law, and instead of offering it up to another faculty member, uh, they allowed this other professor to teach both section, sections, by the way, which is n- not a bad deal, because if you teach two different classes, of course, uh, you have to prepare for two different classes. It's not like you go in and wing a class because you taught it previously. You've got at least good teachers. Good teachers prepare every class before that class. That I prepare every class before the class, even though some of my classes I have now taught for years and years. I've got to reread the cases. I've got to uh, reread the materials. It's a lot of work. In any event, this one teacher has been teaching both sections. Now he's retiring. A colleague of mine, a Democrat, who you know well, Josh Silverstein, has offered to yep. teach a section. And I've offered to teach a section. And we both think that would actually be a wonderful uh, outcome because I'm conservative and he's Democratic. And because we are following the longstanding practice where senior faculty get to first dibs, essentially, on an open position when one becomes open, now they claim, well, that, that's never been the case. I don't know. It must be my lying eyes uh, seeing <laughs> what I've been seeing for nearly 20 years. You know what they say. What's it say? Uh, don't let your lying eyes tell you uh, what's happening. Listen to us. Uh, you know yeah. what? I'm done listening. I'm more interested in actually observing reality uh, for myself. So I think it's very important, by the way, to have a conservative teach constitutional law in a sea of leftists. That's why across this country there are very few conservatives that teach constitutional law because leftist administrators and evidence is clear that administrators are more leftist than faculty and faculty are way leftist uh, administrators are more leftist uh, and they're not in love with having a conservative teach constitutional law now i don't teach politics that's not my goal but i just read an article recently where some leftist professor said well i'm not going to teach these cases because some people may be too delicate a daisy to hear what happened in those cases wait what So you're not going to teach the history and the law because some people might not like what they hear. I teach reality, Dave. I teach what has happened and been overturned. I teach what uh, has happened and hasn't been overturned. I teach the law as it was, and I teach the law as it is, whether or not people are offended. Now, I don't look to offend people, and I obviously do it in a careful way so as to make sure that people feel like they are included but I don't um, use the communist me- method of re-education where I whitewash and white out history. No, that's not how it works. And so, well, you don't, very, you don't, go, sorry. you don't, you don't go in and gaslight people. That's right. There's no gaslighting. It's funny that you use that term because I used that term previously about this claim that oh well, senior faculty don't get to teach uh, an open class. Uh, when it comes open, you know, the history has been exactly that. Sorry. Yeah, that's what the history has been. So I didn't get the yeah. secret Dakota ring on that one, apparently. Well, evidently, they don't want you to think that just because it used to be that way all the time, that when it comes to you, that they won't have a different parameter. Well said. Well said. <laughs> I call that the Steinbuck rule. 
I call that gaslighting. That's exactly what yeah, I sorry. don't believe what you what you've seen happen. You know, we got to tell you what the way we're going to do it this time. There you go. Yeah, I've, I've heard that. Yeah. I have heard that before as well in the broadcasting industry. Hey, listen, Robert, I've got to I got to get myself loaded up on the bus. I appreciate you sitting in for this last half hour uh, with folks. Talk a little bit about that Clinton chair in the next uh, half hour, if you will, the Slick Willie chair. And uh, tell people about what all's going on with that. And then I know that I'm leaving the show in, in good hands. And I do appreciate you uh, very, very much. Remember, if you listen in tomorrow morning, I'll be broadcasting from Louisville, Kentucky. And we'll have uh, J.R. Davis and uh, Ken Yang in the first uh uh, hour and then uh, Duck and Joe in the second hour uh, trying to help you out, keep that car running as long as we possibly can. Until then, I'm out of here till 6 a.m. tomorrow. This is the Dave Ellswick Show. I am Robert Steinbach filling in for Dave this last half hour of the show. Welcome, everybody. Of course, Heidi is on the line with us. Heidi will take us to break uh, in about 15 minutes, maybe 10 minutes. Uh, She's good at doing that, and I'm the opposite. Uh, And then we'll end the show uh, shortly uh, before 8 o'clock, and again, she'll lead us into that. Uh, A few things I want to talk about. By the way, folks have asked uh, before and even today, you know, how they can meet up with me, talk with me. Uh, Feel free uh, to uh, get in touch with me uh, on uh, uh, the Twittergram, as I like to call it, uh, um, and what I mean by that, of course, is simply Twitter. Uh, you can send me an email. Um, uh, my email from the school is uh, re steinbuck s t e i n b u c h at u a l r dot e d u. Um, this afternoon, I'll be over at a Sissy's Log Cabin here in Little Rock, just popping in to say hello. So if you happen to be in town uh, and you catch me, you can catch me there live. I've been stopped often at gun shows for some reason. People know me there. Uh, maybe not for some reason, because I'm a strong Second Amendment advocate, needless to say. And when they hear me talking, they recognize this not-so-Southern accent. In any event, I always enjoy meeting all of Dave's listeners, so Feel free to reach out to me uh, any way you can. Uh, Dave uh, asked uh, before the break about me teaching constitutional law, and it's a very important topic, needless to say. And here's an example. Here's a case that came out of an appellate court. In the American system, there are generally three levels of courts, be it at the state level or the federal level. separate court systems. Your first level is where you go to trial, where if you are charged with a trial or you sue your neighbor, you go to trial. And then the other two levels are called appellate, which just means appeals. Uh, You appeal to one level. uh, You generally do that if you want to automatically. And then the level after that is the Supreme Court. And that's often, certainly in the federal level, up to them. So I want to talk about a case at that first appeal level in the federal level, uh, where you see why constitutional law is so critical, teaching constitutional law, applying constitutional law, that court, when you go to that court, you don't get one judge, you get three. And of course, you get an odd number of three, because you had four or two, and they split, well, what's the decision? So we generally like to have odd numbers on the court, because however it comes out, everybody agrees, or if they split, there's a winner, uh, a majority. The two of them vote one way. 
Well, listen to this case. A divided panel. That means two judges voted one way, one judge voted the other way. Two judges that voted one way, Republican, uh, one judge that voted the other way, a Democrat. A divided panel grants a preliminary injunction. That just means an order to say no go against privileging relief applications based on the race or sex of the applicant. Right. Because this is the world we live in today, folks. It's all identity politics. It's not what you've done, who you are, uh, whether you have satisfied some requirement other than identity politics. Last week, I'm reading from this article. A divided panel, as I said, of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit. We divide it up geographically. We all, by the way, folks in Little Rock, we live in the Eighth Circuit, as it happens to be. Uh, I was down at the courthouse, in fact, uh, where two of the Eighth Circuit judges uh, have their offices. We call them chambers. I was down there yesterday here in Little Rock. Uh, visiting with uh, a good friend of mine, Morris Buzz Arnold. Uh, The other judge I'm also friendly with is Levinsky Smith. He's on the Eighth Circuit. Two good conservatives. Uh, So the Sixth Circuit, that's uh, Ohio and uh, surrounding areas, uh, granted an injunction. That means uh, an order stopping the Small Business Administration from prioritizing applications for COVID-19 relief funding based on the race or sex of the business owner. Wait, what? That's right. We're going to determine, says the Biden administration, whether you get money under COVID relief based on your race or sex, based on the color of your skin, based on your biology. Really? Uh, The opinion was written by a very respected uh, judge who is an Indian-American and to be clear, India, the country, Indian-American a judge, he, he was born here to the best of my knowledge, but his heritage is Indian-American. I point that out simply to say we're talking about identity politics. And guess what? Here's a conservative who's not buying, who's, who is a person of color who's not buying into the identity politics nonsense because he knows it's nonsense. And so he says, uh, he starts the opinion rejecting the idea that we're going to give out COVID money based on your um, race or sex. He says, this is case is about whether the government can allocate limited uh, coronavirus relief funds based on the race and sex of the applicants. We hold that it cannot. That's it. And that's such an important concept. And that's the core of the type of things that are taught in constitutional law. So if you have only leftists indoctrinating students throughout this country in constitutional law, guess what? You wind up with a political ideology that drives the outcomes of cases instead of a judicial uh, and philosophical, uh, non-political philosophical ideology. Uh, The article goes on to say the policy at issue prioritizes applications for relief, as we talked about, from businesses owned by women and racial minorities. Think about that. Hey, send in your application. Tell us why you need money. Yeah, you had to close down the restaurant, whatever it may be. Oh, but if you're a woman or if you're a minority or maybe even better, if you're both, oh, well, you get the money first. Wait, what? Wait, what? Were you discriminated against? Where did you individually come from? No, no, no. The money is allocated, the article goes on, to 
qualifying business on a first-come, first-served basis until the funding runs out. The catch, however, is that for the first 21 days of processing applications, the Small Business Administration will only consider applicants that are at least 51% owned and controlled by women, veterans, or the, quote, socially and economically disadvantaged. And then the latter category, the socially and economically disadvantaged, is defined to cover those who have been, quote, subjected to racial and ethnic prejudice, end quote, or cultural bias, end quote. And the SBA presumes, there's no, they presume, it's not that they test, they presume that members of specific racial and ethnic groups satisfy that criterion. That's the point. You don't have to demonstrate it. Oh, you're a member of this particular group? Yep. Yeah, you were discriminated against. Uh, you're the son of a prince, doesn't matter, you were discriminated against. According to the plaintiffs in the case, meaning the people that sued to overturn this bad idea, this policy constitutes unconstitutional race and sex discrimination, and of course the court agreed with that. Uh, as those who are not members of the relevant groups risk missing out on the money. Right. If it's for it starts out first come first serve and then gets to and, and then it puts at the head of the line racial minorities and says, yeah, you're presumed to have been discriminated against. Isn't that convenient? The government says, well, we know that the use of race and sex uh, to prioritize. Uh, uh, we know that we're doing that to prioritize uh, relief applications, uh, but it's limited. It's limited. And therefore, it's constitutional. But every time you see the government telling you that they're taking away one of your rights, they say, yeah, but don't worry. It's limited. Okay. Do I get my money? Not clear. Um, The majority, the conservative majority of these, this three judge group, we call that group a panel. The conservative majority of this three judge judge, um, panel uh, turned to the equal protection clause of the U.S. Constitution. Again, folks constitutional law, and found that the government failed to demonstrate that the use of race and sex uh, was a compelling or even substantial interest uh, to, outweigh, to outweigh the discrimination that they're imposing. Uh, and, of course, uh, the government said, well, you know, there's past societal discrimination. Nobody disputes that there's past societal discrimination. What is in dispute is whether, therefore, the color of your skin or your biology puts you at the head of the line, period. This is the problem going on in America today. People are all fighting over who should be at the head of the line. How about first come, first serve? How about equal opportunity? Where did the notion of equal opportunity go? That's what's so great about the United States. You know, my parents are immigrants. They came to this country knowing that they had an equal opportunity. Not that they would become Bill Gates rich, and they didn't become Bill Gates rich, I assure you. But they had an opportunity. And they were thankful every day they were here for that opportunity. Those are the people that really embody what I think are the American dream. People, American-born or foreign-born, who say, I want a shot. I don't want a guarantee. I want a shot. And if I make it, uh, great. And if I don't fully make what my goals are, so be it. But I had my shot. Not everybody makes it into the pro league, right? But you want a shot at it.
the judge wrote in his opinion. You know what, Heidi, before I read from the opinion, uh, if you're with us, maybe it's a good time for us to take our break. What do you think? Heidi might have stepped away. Yes, from the let's mic. do it. Sorry oh, about go. that. No worries. Let's take our break. This is the Dave Ellswick Show. I am Robert Steinbuck filling in for, the la- for Dave during this last segment. And we have been talking about this recent opinion from one of the United States Court of Appeals. There are a bunch of them, a little over, I think, 13 of them. Um, uh, and this court struck down race-based and sex-based preferences for COVID relief. And the court, in issuing its opinion, invoked what has now become a commonly heard but very important statement from a Supreme Court opinion written by, I think, Justice Roberts, somewhat surprisingly, given that he's a little bit wishy-washy on some of these issues. And it says, the way to stop discrimination on the basis of race is to stop discriminating on the basis of race. And that's the point here, folks. You don't fix prior discrimination by continuing to discriminate. You fix prior discrimination by creating an environment in which everyone can can succeed. And that's what distinguishes conservatives from leftists. Leftists are about rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. They take a flawed, failed, awful theory approach, whatever one wants to call it, meaning discrimination, and they just move it around. Oh, well, we did it in one place. That was terrible. So let's do it here to offset it. No, you don't take bad on one and then put bad on another. You get rid of discrimination and you move to ensure that everybody has equality of opportunity, equality of access, uh, and so that everybody has an opportunity to be their best selves. But we don't see that from the left. It's, it, it is absolutely tragic. Relate, on a somewhat related point, and I'll probably f- finish up the show on this, is what's called academic freedom and tenure. Now, I know that sometimes people's eyes glaze over when I talk about this topic, so I'm going to try to keep it uh, sort of at a high level uh, and an entertaining level. It's the simple notion that professors like me and others who work in higher education can't be fired based on our beliefs, based on what we write, based on the content of what we teach, because the administration disagrees with us. This is across the country. Now, historically, this came about because administrations were conservative and professors were liberal. And so the liberal professors didn't like conservatives saying, don't teach this, don't teach that. Yeah, and I agree with that because it shouldn't be driven by political ideology. Now, fast forward, there's no doubt that today across the country, administrations of universities are leftists. They're more leftists than the faculty. That's been demonstrated through scientific study. And so the concern no longer is that a leftist is not going to be able to teach in the classroom. The the concern, rather, is whether a conservative can teach in the classroom without interference. Let me say that again. The concern now for freedom of thought for freedom of speech, for what's known as academic freedom, is whether a conservative 
will be interfered in the classroom. And his or her protection is what's known as tenure, meaning you, you can't be fired for saying something or teaching something that the administration doesn't agree with. Don't get me wrong. There are a bunch of loopholes, but that's what the policy is supposed to be. And too often you hear conservatives wrongly say, well, I'm against tenure. It's a way that a bunch of lefty professors get to keep their jobs, even though they don't do their jobs. Uh, Excuse me. Lefty professors aren't fired by more lefty administrators. You know who are fired by more lefty administrators? Conservative professors. So next time you hear some conservative say, I'm against tenure because they're repeating some old hackneyed talking point that they heard 30 years ago, tell them, excuse me, tenure is what protects conservative professors like Rob Steinbuck, but like many other conservative professors across the country, meaning I have tenure. Uh, and if I were to come across uh, at any school that I could teach at uh, a leftist administrator who didn't like what I say or teach, then my response could be, would be, hey, I've got the protection of tenure. You can't fire me for that reason. Often, unfortunately, they look for pretextual reasons and they make up reasons, but put that aside for a moment. So next time you hear some conservatives say, oh, I'm against tenure. It protects a bunch of liberals. Tell them, Rob Steinbuck says, you're dead wrong. Tenure protects conservative professors today. One day it might again protect liberal professors, and that's just fine because it is the equal notion to free speech. And good conservatives protect all free speech, free speech of the left and of the right. Oh, I want the lefties to be able to say whatever they want. That's right. Why? Because I believe what they say. No, for two reasons. Because then I get to say what I want to say, and that's how you have a debate. You don't have a debate when you quash the speech of the other side. And that's what leftism seeks to do today. It seeks to quash the speech of the other side. Everybody has to march lockstep, goose-stepped in the leftist ideology. I don't want that from the left, and I don't want that from the right. I want to have a discussion, and, and that's why I come on the Dave Ellswick Show, because we have these discussions, and then you, the listener, get to decide on your own. You don't need to come to a show and hear just one ideology. Yes, we emphasize the conservative ideology, but we talk about what's going on on the other side so that you can have a balanced perspective. And that is not going on on the left, right? You've heard this CNN well, we're, and MSNBC. We're not going to have conservatives come on. They don't say conservatives. We're, we're not going to have people who don't tell the truth. This is the move by the left now. If they don't want to hear your ideology, well, you're just not telling the truth. Excuse me. This is a different ideology. No, you're just not telling the truth. Where do we see that? Oh, Tom Cotton, he's not telling the truth about the virus starting in the Wuhan lab. Uh, Fast forward. Oh, Washington Post says, hmm, maybe there's a little truth to that. The Biden administration says, hmm, we better investigate that to look into whether or not the virus came from the lab. By the way, Tom Cotton didn't say it did come from the lab. He said, well, that seems like a perfectly plausible theory to examine. There is a lab that deals with these kind of viruses and right there in Wuhan, China. And we're not investigating as to whether or not this virus came from that lab. 
This is the kind of one-sided reporting, one-sided philosophy that goes on in leftism. It's an echo chamber. All right, Robert. Thank you so much for uh, talking with us. It's time to wrap up the show. Absolutely. And uh, Dave Ellswick, he will be back, um, but he will be um, in Louisville, Kentucky tomorrow. So he will not be in the studio. He will be on location in Kentucky. However, we will have also the car and truck doctors. uh, Joe and Duck will be on. And we should also hear from um, J.R. Davis from the Gilmore Davis Group as well as Ken Yang from the Saline County Republican Party. See you tomorrow, 6 a.m. on the Dave Ellswick Show.